Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning in praise and in worship. Open our hearts, open our minds, that we might hear and digest your word for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Do any of you here remember the TV show MASH? Some? Okay. MASH was one of my favorite shows. My husband and I used to enjoy that show together. And fun fact, that show, that, that sitcom lasted about three times as long as the actual Korean War, but <laughs> there it is. One of my favorite episodes of that show was about a particular night. It was the middle of winter. It was cold, cold, cold. They were short on medical supplies. They were short on heat. They were short on patients. They were short on every, my patients with a CE, not a TS. They had, they had just, they had just run out of wanting to deal with any of this. And lo and behold, the supply truck showed up Hallelujah. When they opened the supply truck, it was full of supplies that would have been perfect for the heat of summer, suntan lotion and that sort of thing. But among the supplies, they found an empty mailbag. Well, it was empty except for one small package that was delivered to BJ Honeycutt. He was one of the, serpent, the surgeons there. The package contained a novel. The novel was called The Rooster Crows at Midnight by Miss Abigail Bedenfield. The jacket went on to say it was spine-tingling whodunit, and uh, they identified that she was, at that point, 97 years old and living in Sydney, Australia. Well, these surgeons and all the medical staff, they were all good at their jobs. When real patients came in, they handled it. But the fact of the matter was they were out there in the middle of nowhere in this mobile army surgical hospital. They had very little intellectual stimulation. They were starved for something that they could discuss intellectually. And it was when they were trying to entertain themselves, that's when usually when things went bad, if you, if you were a watcher of the show. But in this particular episode, they were so happy to get this novel. And what they did was the surgeons sat and read the first chapter, and then they carefully removed it, and they passed it along to the nurses. And then the nurses read the first chapter and passed it along to the others. And this way, the whole camp got to join together and rejoice in the stimulation of this novel, and it gave them something to talk about to figure out who committed the murder. And it was such an exciting time for them. It was exactly the relief that they needed from this extreme cold and uncomfortable conditions. It worked great right up until they got to the end of the novel and found out that the last page was missing. You know that page, the one that says, and the killer was. <laughs> well, so they, 
They sat down, they worked together, and they worked so hard, going over clues and reviewing who remembered who was where at any given time, and they really gave it a good effort and could not come up with an answer. So finally, out of desperation, they got a phone number and they called Ms. Abigail Bedenfield in Sydney, Australia, and this 97-year-old author kind of, sort of, just about remembered writing that book. <laughs> and she said, well, I remember that book, and the killer's name was Abner Devine. And they said, oh, hallelujah. They released it to the camp. Everybody was happy. They were so relieved and satisfied. And then another supply truck showed up with the right supplies, and everybody was happy, right up until the last scene of the episode, when old Colonel Potter walked in and he said, guess what, folks? I went back and looked. It could not have been Abner Devine because he was locked in a closet with Miss Jessica at the time of the murder. <laughs> and that's how the episode ended, with them all going, huh? <laughs> Isn't that how we are? We like to have things, we're, we're up for a good mystery, but when all is said and done, we want to know how it ends. We want things neatly tied up. I love police shows. A lot of you know that I'm a retired police officer, and by golly, those police shows, you know where a crime's committed in the first 10 minutes, and then they investigate, and then they solve it in the next 20 minutes. And then after that, the guy goes to trial and, and gets convicted because of their solid police work. <laughs> and it's all tightly wrapped up in a bow by the end of the hour, and isn't that delightful? Well, let me just tell you, police work is not like that. It they don't talk about waiting the months for the lab reports to come back from the FBI lab or the DNA analysis or talking to the witnesses. They don't, they don't really delve into any of that. And then they, they would have, if they did, they would have to make a season out of every single mystery. And then the last two episodes would be devoted to the officers all sitting in the office writing paperwork. <laughs> all right, that's not compelling TV, is it? Why am I bringing those things up? Well, in our, in our gospel lesson today, the disciples are admiring this beautiful, awesome temple adorned with stones. It's gorgeous. And the temple is, to them, not just the center of Jewish life, but also where they know that God is living with them. And Jesus springs on them. You're talking about the temple, but before the end, the temple not a stone will be left unturned. Not a stone. And as it turns out, about 40 years later, in AD 70, much of Jerusalem was destroyed. And the temple was burned, and the gold that was adorning it seeped down in between the rocks. And then the Romans came, and they seized the rocks so they could get the gold off the rocks. So indeed, not a, not a stone was left unturned. But the disciples' questions to Jesus 
are the intriguing part of this because their questions I don't think are any different than the questions we would be asking. Jesus says, well, yes, this is beautiful, but in the end, not a stone will be left unturned. He was predicting total destruction. What were the questions? When's this gonna happen? How are we gonna know it's gonna happen? Is there gonna be a sign? What are we gonna be doing? What do we do next? What sign should we look for? But Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Jesus instead paints a picture for them. He paints a picture of warring nations, insurrections, earthquakes, famines, plagues. I imagine that many of us in this room at some point have, have looked around at what's going on in our world today and said, hmm, warring nations, check. Earthquakes, check. Hurricanes, check. He didn't list COVID, but he listed plagues, so check. The United States is continuing to accumulate debt. Our troops are still around the world. Terrorist attacks are still going on. And what about the, the worldwide Christian church? We're in kind of a post-Christian society, and some people look at us as, as a fringe element. Some who call themselves Christians are denying the authority of scripture, denying the resurrection, denying the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, that's not a new brand of Christianity. That's no Christianity at all. Those are the fundamentals of our faith. So in these times today, how are we to act as followers of Christ? The truth is the real focus of Jesus' words is not on the end of the world itself or even on the signs that will accompany it. The focus is on what those times will mean for those of us who call ourselves Christians. The disciples want to know when things will occur. They want all the answers. Instead, Jesus tells them what not to do when the world seems to be falling apart. What not to do when they find themselves on trial. So what do you do if the world is falling apart? In our gospel lesson, Jesus offers three directives to his disciples. Do not be led astray by false prophets. Do not be terrified. And do not prepare your own defense in advance. In other words, don't be anxious. Don't look for quick fixes and don't become defensive. Sadly, when their world's falling apart, most people, Christian or not, do exactly the opposite of what Jesus instructed them to do. They become anxious, worry excessively, and seek desperately for a quick fix to try and lift the burden. The question that Jesus poses to his disciples is not how will you react to and survive these times, 
His question was, what will be your witness? When times are trying, and they will be, what is your witness? Did you hear the line in the text where Jesus uses the word opportunity? It sort of made, it made me smile when I thought about that the other day because we've got all these things going on. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you will die. But hey, what an opportunity to tell your story. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's what we're called to do. Jesus is crystal clear. The Bible will give you an opportunity to testify. These trying times will give us, all that call themselves believers, an opportunity to testify. Usually when we think of an opportunity, we think of something, we associate that with something good. Hey, she just got a new job. What a wonderful opportunity. He found that house in a, in a beautiful neighborhood. What an opportunity. We don't think of an opportunity as a time when our entire world is falling apart. Yet our Lord does, and he calls us to testify, to share our story, to share how Jesus has impacted and changed our lives, how he's transformed us and continues to transform us, that we are a new creation, the word testify is the same Greek word that is translated witness. And it's from that word where we receive the English word martyr. Now some people seem to be disturbed by the term witness, but I'm convinced Christ uses this word for a reason. What makes a good, a good witness? Well, if we think back to our police drama and we go into a courtroom, a witness is called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if a witness goes off and just rambles on, then a judge says they're out of order. That's no different than our Christian walk. You must be believable. Are you a believable witness? Does your life portray what you're saying? Is your witness as a Christian believable? There is a way to know. If our country began to persecute Christians, round them up, lock them up, kill some of them for their beliefs, would your actions alone prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Are you then a believable Christian? The other component of that is it's very important to tell only what you have heard, what you have seen. The, the word for that in courtroom parlance, if you're talking about what others have seen, that's hearsay. Someone, someone tells you and plays whisper down the lane, that's not your story, that's their story. Don't give someone else's witness. Remember to testify to the truth as you know it. Testify to your transforming life. Tell only what you have seen, 
what you have experienced. Maybe you don't think your witness is earth-shattering, as some, some really are, some are not. But your life will affect others. I remember when I started my ordination process, the first time that I went to see Canon Lewis, and uh, he said, tell me about when you first accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I immediately, you know, I, I've, I grew up in a very small town. The church was in north central Pennsylvania. The church was the social center of the town. There really wasn't much to do that wasn't related to the church. Youth groups and choirs and trick-or-treat for UNICEF and all that kind of stuff. It's what we did. It was 2,000 people in the middle of farmland. But I looked at Ken and Lewis and I said, if you're waiting for a story about me being struck by lightning or something, it's not coming. I, I don't. And he said, eh, you, may want, you may want to work on that testimony a little bit before you actually go see the bishop. And he was right, of course. But we each have our own stories, no matter what they are. And you know, upon further reflection, there are a lot of things in my life that I could talk about. But being hit suddenly with that question, I wasn't prepared for it. We need to be prepared for it without rehearsing. Did you catch the part where Jesus said, don't rehearse, I will give you the words. Your words will be so filled with love and grace that your adversaries won't even be able to contradict you. Our testimony is not a self-defense. It's sharing our love with others, sharing our background with others. And God promises that he will give us words of wisdom. They're words from one transformed and being transformed then. He will open our mouths and help us. This world and the people that are placed in your life through God's eyes are there for a reason. Take heart. Jesus gives assurance to the disciples and to us this day that no matter how bad the world around us seems to be, Jesus will see that you do not perish eternally, but gain your soul and gain eternity with him. Let's reflect on that for just a moment. In the end, Jesus is not interested in telling us precisely what the future holds, but rather telling us who holds the future. And when you know in your heart who holds the future, then you know who holds your every moment in the present, too. It's that confidence that allows us to rest easy when Jesus tells us that he will be with us and will even provide us with the words to say if and, if and when the world presses in on us and persecutes us for his sake. As it says in, Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, we are his and he is ours. He is with us now and until the end of the age.
Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for bringing us here today to hear and talk about your word. Lord, open our hearts. Help us to see how you are transforming us and those around us each and every day and enable us to understand how we are growing so that we might better be able to share our story with others. Lord, as we leave here, help us to reflect on that. Help us to reflect on the joy of the knowledge that you are with us. You've been with us, you are with us now, and you will continue to be with us. And Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.